Shake the room. I'd like to introduce our celebrity guest for this episode of the Hammer Factor, a former world record holder, extreme kayaking legend, um, pre-world's freestyle champion, and father of two. Welcome to the show, Teo Berman. Can can you? John, hear me? good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, I can hear you just fine. So, what from that intro did I? Uh, would you like to fill in, or is there anything that I left out? Well, you did a pretty good job, like you said. Uh, former, uh, well, I had a couple of world records back in the day. That was a long time ago for the highest waterfall I ever kayaked. Uh, bottom line, when I look back at my career, I just really see myself as having been a kayaker more than a record holder or things of that because it was just such a large part of my life for so long. Before we get into some particulars of your paddling career, one thing that always stood out to me was um, your kind of the contrast of how you grew up i've i've met your mom on a few occasions out at the uh teva or the currently now gopro mountain games um you are a pretty um uh you're not exactly um a hippie but you were kind of raised that way on a, hip, <laughs> a hippie commune can you can you kind of elaborate on your upbringing and maybe the way that motivated you to be who you are right now yeah, it's a great question. My my mother came from a reasonably middle class, upper middle class family in Seattle, got out of college, traveled the world, spent quite a bit of time in Africa, and just decided she didn't want to live the orthodox, all-American life. So she chose to move out to a mountain in eastern Washington where we no water, no running, uh, no water, no electricity, none of the modern day comforts. And I didn't know any different when I was born. But what I did know growing up is that if I wanted something, I had to create it for myself. If I wanted to go see a friend, we had no car. So I had to walk up the mountain that we lived. I was a really young age that, that whatever I wanted, I couldn't expect it. To, it I couldn't expect it to be handed to me on a, on a plate, so to speak. When I was in, in the paddling scene, there were a lot of uh, paddlers that came from trust fund type backgrounds and that was just never a part of uh, a part of my history so what it really taught me when I got into paddling is that if I wanted to paddle full-time because I love doing that more than anything I had to create a way to make it pay because I didn't want to spend eight hours a day doing something I didn't enjoy I wanted to paddle and really that was the the motivating factor that made me decide I wanted to be a professional kayaker what do you think how, how did that translate into your uh your training and preparation and how you approached kayaking not just getting the funds to go kayaking It's difficult to say I don't know how much of the approach I took to kayaking was a product of the way I was raised and how much of it was just a product of who I was going to be because of the genes I had when I was born uh, I'd like to think that a large element of the approach that I took to my career was uh, really driven by the way I, w I, w I was brought up. And it was I was really brought up to have no sense of entitlement. So I, my goals were always very clear to me when I was a kid. Uh, you know, I wasn't asking my mother or my father to buy me stuff because we didn't have any money. I mean, there were literally years that my mom made $4,000 that she had to feed her three kids. Uh, that money would go a long ways because there were no electricity bills or things things like that. 
But I just learned that if I wanted something, I had to create it. And I knew that the approach that I took to being an athlete was going to definitely ruffle some feathers, shall we say, because I couldn't afford to, I suppose, um, rely on my father's money at the end of the day to, to make it to the next river. I had to create an income stream from paddling. Um, so my goals were always very, very focused. Initially, when I, when I got into the sport, I just loved paddling the hardest stuff that I could possibly kayak. And at the time, I didn't really realize I was out there pushing the edge of the sport because I wasn't paying attention to what other guys around the world were doing in their kayaks. I was just doing it because I wanted to test myself. And once I felt like I'd tested myself in that arena long enough, I was looking for an image. And that's when I got into freestyle kayaking. At the time, a lot of my critics were saying, well, yeah, Taylor's doing a good job running the hard stuff, but he won't live through the year or the year after that. And year after year, I was proving them wrong. And then I had a whole group of critics that were well, or even very good in the creek boat, but he's not good at freestyle kayaking. And what my critics perhaps didn't realize is they were really my uh, they were my biggest benefactors because they gave me the motivation to to prove them wrong. So I got into freestyle kayaking with the goal to to win the biggest event of the year. And the year that that I won the biggest event of the year was uh, it was an off world's year, so it was the pre world championships. And I won that. And then I was looking for a new goal, and I decided I'd get into the extreme extreme racing end of the sport. And my goal was to have a, a season where I was undefeated. And uh, Pat Keller made that very challenging for me. He was a very fierce competitor, but I did have a year where I went undefeated there. And that was really, that was the evolution of my, of what I did in the sport. And that's that I was constantly looking for a new challenge within the sport. And the reason I, I finally retired uh, six years ago was because I all the boxes that I wanted to or that really I was passionate about in the sport. And once I'd done that, I wanted a new challenge and I didn't want to continue paddling because, well, it was just the easy thing to do. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to find a new challenge. So I'm not sure that I exactly answered your question, but that's <laughs> there it is. Well, uh, through that, you know, extreme racing, extreme paddling, uh, you know, first descents of a lot of drops and and winning a, a freestyle world championship, what would you consider your expertise in the sport is? Not getting hurt. <laughs> I spent you know, <laughs> I spent I spent almost two decades paddling and really pushing the sport for a good part of that, and and I never had an injury, and that's probably my single greatest uh, or proudest achievement because uh, it shows that I use good judgment. Even when you could look at so many things that I did, look at them as an isolated incident and say, oh, God, that's just crazy. Well, you do that long enough without an injury, and it goes to show that there's some good judgment there. Um, so I was very proud of that. Um, I do remember, that being said, I do remember after winning the pre-world championships and the feeling of, of really the last three years that I trained so hard to finally have that result was immensely rewarding also. So backing up a little bit to uh, to your um, when you were approaching sponsors, gaining sponsorship deals and whatnot. One thing that stood out to me, I was doing a film project for Teva Footwear at the time. Adam Druckmann was working there, and we were discussing some different um, uh, you know things that we were going to do in the future. And your name got brought up, and your name got brought up, and uh, essentially the way. We were talking about sponsorships of various things, and I was listening to these sponsorship deals where other people were 
negotiating a certain number of shoes per year and another you know they were trying to get a little cash for a trip and whatnot and you were go and you were negotiating stock options and things that were totally outside of the box um where how did you come up with your approach to getting sponsorships did did you have a mentor in that did you read books how did you figure out exactly what you wanted to ask a sponsor it's a really good question Uh, my whole life i've you know, we all have different strengths and weaknesses. And one of my strengths my entire life has just been selling. I suppose even from a young age, I sort of understood the notion that when you're selling somebody on something, what you really need to be doing is thinking in terms of what they want, not what you want. Because we all know what we want. But once we truly understand what the other person wants and we find a way to give it to them, then the sale's pretty easy. So to back up a little bit, when I decided to become a professional kayaker, I, I looked at what guys were doing in the sport ahead of me, what they were doing right, what I didn't think they were doing right. Um, I'm not really that creative, but I'm very good at looking what other people have done, tweak it to try and improve upon it. Dan Gavir at the time was was um, the generation before me, and he himself, but he never really made any money off of paddling. I knew that when I was 30, 35, didn't want to look back on the last 15 years of my paddling life and have nothing but great memories. Although that's incredibly important, I didn't want to then be lost and go through a midlife crisis at that age. I wanted to also be planning for, for my future beyond paddling, even though at the time it was so many years ahead. So what I did was I took a very different approach to being an athlete. I looked at myself really nothing more than, than a product. I had a billboard, and the more visible I was, the more valuable that billboard space would, would become. Uh, so everything about the approach that I took was different to go back to what you were talking about with regard to Teva. Sure. At the time, all the guys were asking for was really sandals for that contract. But if, if you're asking for sandals, you're not going to ever get more than sandals. And I sort of framed to Teva and to Adam the value that I could provide to their brand. And then I thought, well, perhaps if I take an unorthodox approach to why I perceive the value that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be giving to that brand has value. I wanted to, t- to tie my compensation to to the value that I thought that I could bring to Teva at the time. And I thought the best way to do that would be through discussing stock options. And so essentially you had a performance marketing deal with them. You said, look, I'll take less knowing that I'm going to contribute and in the long run I'll get more. Is that kind of – That's right. That's, yeah. exa- that's exactly right. I mean at the end of the day, any, any partnership uh, – should work out as long as the interests are, are mutually aligned. And the key to any good business relationship, in my opinion, is making sure that the economic interests are truly aligned well. And if they are, then you're going to be working in the same direction all the time. And if they're not, you're going to have mistakes. That's why when I look at, at the time that I spent with Eric being my videographer, Jock being my still photographer, we had a structured relationships in place so that whenever uh, I was doing something, they benefited and vice versa. And that's why we were able to have this great relationship for really 10, 15 year span and never have any problems because our, our interests were truly aligned well. There you go, Hammer Factor Nation. There's some value bombs. Make sure that your relationships add value to all parties involved if you want them to keep going. Um, so you, you said you kind of uh, thought of yourself as a billboard. The more numbers you could get, the more value you could get. Did you ever... You know, there was that tail Berman haters out there. And did you ever did you ever feel did you ever listen to what they were saying and say, and feel like you were selling your soul out? Did you ever feel like you were selling out? Well, I listened to what they were saying. I never felt like I was selling out. And here's the reason. Define what selling out means. 
Well, it depends. If you're selling out um, your identity and what you believe in for money, that's what I would consider selling out. I completely agree with you. As I stated earlier, what was most important to me when I decided to become a professional athlete, or I should say my motivations for it, was so that I can afford to kayak every day because that's what I liked more than anything. My definition of a sellout would be somebody doing something for money when they don't enjoy what they're doing. And you see people that do that on Wall Street and, and in all spectrums of life all the time. Uh, I was doing exactly what I, was do what I wanted to be doing and I was getting paid for it. The only way I was able to get paid to do exactly what I wanted to do was to understand how I could create value to brands. And the moment I wasn't able to create value to brands is, was the moment they would stop paying me and the moment I would have to get a real job and not be out paddling every day. So by your definition of the word sellout, by, by my definition of the word sellout, absolutely not. I was, I was living my dream and I really wouldn't, looking back on my career, I wouldn't change any of it. The reality is a lot of the critics that I had that being some of those from the Asheville crowd, <laughs> I suspect that if they were given the, if they were given the, if they were put in my shoes and they had the opportunity to get paid to paddle every single day, perhaps they would have made more of the choices that I made. But keep in mind, John, for a moment, there's a difference between a paddler that knows that they'll never be good enough to be a professional kayaker, or perhaps they would be good enough, but they like their normal nine to five job and they're happy doing that. Nothing wrong with that. But for me, I didn't want that. I wanted to be a professional kayaker. And there are certain compromises and sacrifices that one needs to make when they understand the value that they can provide to a brand. Well, there's certainly no doubt that you made some things happening and, and happen and, uh, you know, winning the winning the, the pre-world competition and, and, and going undefeated. There's certainly some high points, but bring us to that low point. Bring us to the point when you thought, you know what? I'm going to get rid of this boat. I'm done with this paddle. It's time to do something different. You know, the, the lowest point in my paddling career, it's actually a great question. Nobody's asked me it. I was out at the, um, the Gorge Games back in, it might have been 99 or 2000. And I didn't make it through to, to the finals. And the only reason was just pure arrogance on my fault, on, on, my, on, uh, on a mistake I made. And it was, I remember NBC was going to do a big feature on me at the finals, et cetera, et cetera. We were in the prelims. It was a long boat uh, sprint to advance to the finals. The guys I was going against, I was much faster than. I knew it. And I went out ahead of them and then went to cut them off, thinking it would be more spectacular. One of them clipped the back of my long boat and spun me out. It was a very short dash, so I didn't have time to really spin all the way around and then and then make it to the finals. And it was 100% my mistake, and I learned a lot from it. Mm -hmm. um, I, learned, I learned a lot from it, but it was an incredibly low point in my career because I knew that I had nobody to blame than my own arrogance. And uh, that's why I didn't make the finals, and I learned from it, and I certainly never made that mistake again. You know, I remember that. I was at that event. I, I actually made it through to the finals, to that final 16, and we raced through BZ and then on to Big Brother and yeah. Little Brother. That was, that, was a, that was a good event. That was my... That was one of my, uh, I think that was my first West Coast race. I remember and that. And there you have it. And you smoked me. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, what is the, you know, going back to, you know, what, what's the best advice that you ever received um, in regards to paddling and, and maybe life in general, but a lot of times those two kind of correlate? 
I remember when I was about a year or two into my paddling career, not career, but just after having started a year or two into it, there was an older gentleman by the name of Randolph Pierce. We all called him RP. He was from the East Coast. He was a squirt boater. He was also a creek boater. And his technical skills were incredible. I mean, they were incredible. And I remember him talking about before starting to run harder whitewater, learning to use pillows, learning to read the water, learning to use uh, little currents and waves to surf across rocks in front of rocks that might have a pillow to get more momentum to traverse across the river, things like that. And at the time, it was so overwhelming because there are so many intricacies, as you know, to truly being a good whitewater paddler. Gravity dictates that you're, you go down. When you go over a waterfall, you're going to make it to the bottom. But how you make it to the bottom and how you navigate your way through the rapid, well, that often is determined or it's always determined by how good you are and how well you understand white water and, and reading a rapid. And at the time, I remember just being overwhelmed by how much there was that I needed to learn. Uh, so the best advice I can get I can give with regard to paddling is really to focus on the basics. Guys these days go from being a class one paddler to a class five paddler so much faster than, than we did back in the day. And just because you're running class five doesn't make you a good whitewater paddler. To me, what is so beautiful is when you watch a guy paddle something incredibly difficult and make it look like class one. That's when you're truly a good paddler. But any fool can get through class five and most of the time make it to the bottom upside down upright or even pointed forward uh, it's really putting the time in to learn the rudiments so that when you start running class five you can make it look like class one now one of our listeners here at the hammer factor uh, sent us a link to your email with some uh, curious underwear modeling photos what, <laughs> what what can you what can you tell us about uh about about those photos and and, and that part of your career yeah. thanks for that thanks for bringing that up john <laughs> Yeah, that was a uh, that was a Rolling Stone photo shoot. Uh, they contacted me. They were they being Rolling Stone wanted to do an article or a feature on different extreme athletes. And the photographer, his name's David LaChapelle. For those in the whitewater world, which is probably all of you that don't follow photography, he, he's probably the most famous fo uh, photographer ever. Certainly, he was at the time. He was shooting Madonna. He was shooting presidents, and. If you look at his work, his genre is more on the sex appeal side. It's actually completely on the sex appeal side. And I knew I was in for something that, that I was going to perhaps regret given all the, uh, all, all the comments that would come from the paddling world. But I didn't think it would be right to go into his world and try and dictate the way he can shoot me. I knew that he perceived himself as an artist. He, he is an artist. You don't have to like his art. But at the end of the day, it was his shoot, and he um, – I was going to let him choose and do what he wanted. It's actually quite interesting. So I flew down to L.A. He did what nobody knows. In fact, you're the first person that's ever asked me this. But what nobody knows is that the first shoot I did, I was in Speedos jumping out of a swimming pool wearing a paddle. And that was a ridiculous shot. I flew home and I went, oh, my gosh, what have I done? What? Now, what do you up. mean you were in Speedos? <laughs> what, you were in Speedos yeah. wearing a paddle. What do you mean? I was in Speedos holding a paddle, oh, okay, okay. jumping from underwater, coming out of the water with this water falling off of, off of my body. And it was ridiculous, and it was, it was incredibly cheeseball. And I went home thinking, oh, my goodness, what have I done? <laughs> he called me that night and said, hey, you know what, Teo? We can do better with you. I've, I've never done this. I've never scheduled a reshoot. When you fly back to L.A., I had this tech campaign where they paid me a quarter million dollars to create this backdrop 
And this was back around 99. The tech company ended up going under during the dot-com crash, but they gave him the rights to use this backdrop. He remembered it after I flew home after the first shot and said, would you come back? I, w- I want to shoot you uh, on a bed, in underwear, but we want to <laughs> impose this backdrop. And I, I said, all right, I'll, I'll come back to L.A. And that's the history to that Rolling Stone photo shoot. Very good. So what is it? Uh, what are you most fired up with these days? Uh in, in the sport of kayaking, if you've followed anything on social media or been paddling yourself, and in general, what has you the most fired up? What has me the most fired up these days is dirt biking. When I got out of paddling, or I should say when I retired from, from kayaking, I was really looking for a new challenge, a new outlet that I could, I could not be good at something so that I could see the learning curve again, because that's just such an exciting time in, in the progression of any sport. So I got into dirt biking, uh, more the, the very, very hard enduro style that, that I'm into. And what I want to do these days is I want to go to R- Romania and race Red Bull Romaniacs, which is a five-day race, kind of recognizes one of the hardest motor races in the world. That's what I'm really fired up about right now. That and, of course, spending time with my two young kids and um, living life in the gorge. Tell me about your two young kids. My son, Cole, is almost five. He has a birthday in February. My daughter's uh, six and a half. My daughter is as girly girl as you can imagine. And my son is exactly like me. He's just pushing the envelope. In fact, at, at four years old, I'd take him up to, uh, to mountain bike. We'd do a downhill shuttle and do stuff that, if I showed it to you, you wouldn't even believe a four-year-old's doing this. And it's, it's just like having a, a mini-me to go out and explore <laughs> the world and go on adventures. And it's just... It's just such a wonderful time with the kids in the age they are. Yeah, fatherhood, you know, having kids is a it's a lot of work, but man, it's a it's a special thing. There's no doubt about that. It it's incredible. I mean, really we're we're creating, you know, we have an opportunity to either create assets or liabilities in this world, and I want to spend a tremendous amount of time with my kids so that I can raise them to be productive members of of society, to know, you know, have to have good moral values and and to have buddies to go out and do stuff with for the next bunch of decades. I don't know. You've always been an inspiration to me, Teo. I've always, uh, you know, had a good time talking with you and whatnot. And uh, I just want to say thanks for coming on the Hammer Factor. One thing that always struck me, um, I don't know, it's not strange or odd, but just always struck me was when you kind of did your exit and announced your retirement from competitive kayaking, you did that on there was a video featuring you paddling a big wave and that was kind of the announcement of your retirement. I had never seen you, uh, you know, kayak surf before in the ocean or anything like that. What, what, what made you choose that? It's a really good question. I almost retired two years earlier, uh, to backtrack on my career again. What I was initially incredibly passionate about was the extreme end of the sport. And once I'd done that long enough and achieved some of those goals and moved on to uh, the the freestyle kayaking side of things and achieved that goal. I needed a new challenge to, it's just, that's what, what I thrive on is, is challenges and setting, setting goals. Uh, once I was the, I, I won the freestyle uh, championships, then it was the extreme end of the sport and I'm sorry, the extreme racing end of the sport. Once I'd had that undefeated season, I almost retired then but I was looking for a new challenge, and when Red Bull said they'd fund my big wave project, it gave me another challenge. Uh, at the time, I wasn't convinced that there was a kayak on the market that was really designed to stand the impact of a big wave if it were to land on me. So I, I had the, the, the opportunity to work with Randy Phillips 
to design a surf kayak that I thought would would perform on really big waves and withstand the impact uh, if I if I got crushed by one of the big waves. So ultimately, it wasn't so much as a marketing move uh, as an exit piece from the sport. It was another challenge within the sport, something that I wasn't good at. I'd never done surf kayaking prior to to sort of making that announcement. Rusty Sage and others were far better surf kayakers than myself. But what motivated me was that I wasn't good at it and that I thought I could surf really big waves. And it sounded like challenging. And it sounded like a very challenging endeavor that would take a couple years to complete. And once I'd done that, uh, there really was nothing left in the sport that that excited me from the perspective of something new that I hadn't already been doing for, for a long time in the sport. And that's why I knew it was time to – that's when I knew – to be honest with you, that's when I knew I'd be a sellout if I continued kayaking because I'd be doing it for the wrong reasons. I didn't have the same motivation to try and improve because the reality is at the time I retired, I was so good. It was a full-time job to not get worse. And there, I mean, I'm not saying I was the only one that was that good, but you get once you get to a point in your career where you're at, let's say, 97% of your potential, any incremental increase is so hard to achieve. When I got into kayaking or into dirt biking after I retired, I was so bad at it. I was at like 5% of my potential that every day I went out, I got better at it. So for me, it's seeing a, this learning curve for myself is, is incredibly exciting. And, um, and that's why I knew it was time for a new challenge because um, I, I just wasn't – I didn't have the same passion that I'd had for all those years when I was doing it every single day. Well, I got a new challenge for you. It's the Green River Narrows race. And this is a personal invitation from me for you to bring your whole family out. I'll cover your entry fee and come out and race the Green Race Tail. Come on. That's, that's a challenge that, that sounds quite appealing. The, as fast as the guys are these days, I think I'd have to spend quite a bit of time in my, uh, in my kayak simply to not be embarrassed by it. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm dealing with that every year, so welcome to the club. <laughs> so it'd be both of us. You know, I'll take that under consideration. One of the regrets I actually have, John, uh, when I look back at my career, and I always wanted to do this, it just never worked with, for whatever reason it never worked, was coming out and racing the green race. I felt like so much of the criticism, the Theo Berman criticism, was coming from that crowd that I thought it would be really fun to go and spend 10 days with that crowd training with that crowd and then at the time i certainly thought beating that crowd but we'll never know um so that's one of those things that if i spend time in my boat next summer i would love to take you up on i'd love to take you up on that come out with my family it's been years since i've seen you and a lot of the the other Asheville crowd that i know i, I would love that well it's an open invitation and we'd certainly love to love to have you out here once you got out here i'm sure you would uh there's a lot more warmth than the few bad apples. You know how it is. Um, I know how it is. That being said, John, I really, really do appreciate that invite. I paddled the, the Green River one time. I, I remember I, I followed somebody down, which is always the most fun way to run a river, to not get out and scout, to know that the guy that's in front of you knows it so well, and you count on him having good lines that you could just read and run. And it was just such a memorable experience that I would love to be out on the East Coast paddling the Green River with you. Well, before we close this interview, is there anything you'd like to uh, for the Hammer Factor listeners to know or any in a, any bits of nuggets or value bombs you'd like to drop on them? Yeah, I think your questions have been good and nothing comes to mind right now. Thank you for uh, inviting me on the Hammer Factor. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>